the Water Values Podcast, session 154. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Steve McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. have a great show for you today. It's going to be a, it's a mind-blowing show. I, when I re-listened to the interview I, when I was doing the sound editing, uh, I just it kept going through my mind. What, what terrific insight uh, that Rocky Holiday is going to have for you today. Uh, Rocky is an entrepreneur and he's involved with an entity called Watership Blue. It's mobile desalination, uh, ship to shore, uh, uh, you know, fresh water. Uh, and so uh, th- this, is, this is really an interesting concept and I am just so happy uh, that uh, that I was able to speak with Rocky and bring this to you. Before we get to the interview with Rocky, however, let's do a little housekeeping first and foremost. Thank you for the uh, five-star ratings and reviews that keep coming. Uh, the most recent one on Apple Podcast is by Peter Francison on September 5, 2019. Uh, Peter gives it a five-star r- rating, and uh, his review is terrific. He says, awesome podcast. I am an MPA student at IU Bloomington focusing on water management. This podcast provides me with valuable information from a wide range of perspectives on water resource topics. It is informative yet also entertaining, and I would recommend to people of all different careers and occupations, for it applies to all of us. Thank you, and keep up the good work. Well, thanks very much for that terrific review, Peter. Much appreciated. Uh, and if you are, would like to, uh, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. You know, whatever, whatever podcast directory you're listening on, uh, please consider leaving a five-star rating and uh, a terrific review. I would really appreciate it. It just helps others find out about the podcast. The other thing, uh, the other bit of housekeeping that I typically go through is uh, if you want to support the podcast financially, you know, know, the the web hosting, the media hosting, all that stuff costs money. And uh, any financial contribution you can contribute, any denomination, uh, is greatly appreciated and helps keeps helps keep the valves open and the water flowing. So with that, let's get on to our feature interview with Rocky Holiday of Watership Blue. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Rocky, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could come on today uh, for uh, for some background. Could you please uh, tell us a little about yourself and how you got interested in water? I'd be happy to, Dave, and thanks for the opportunity to chat with you today. I'm looking forward to this. Um, sure, my my background is pretty is somewhat as a serial entrepreneur, Dave, um, as well as a longtime corporate executive with over 30 years of building and uh, directing complex production operations, both here in the states as well as abroad. Um, between the years of 95 and 2005, I founded my first two companies in the United Arab Emirates, uh, ended up taking them public over there on their local exchange. Uh, those two startups included Abu Dhabi Shipbuilding, which at that time was the largest and most modern shipbuilder in the Middle East, 
where I served as CEO for 10 years, uh, a little over 10 years actually. Currently, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Watership Loop, a company that is building and operating a, a global fleet of specialized ships um, that will produce large volumes of desalinated water. Um, I also own a consulting firm, Dave, and that's been operating for well over a decade uh, that provides strategic advisory services to major U.S. corporations that are doing business overseas. Um, and then finally, kind of going back to a, a bit earlier in my career, I was a senior executive in both the U.S. energy and the U.S. shipbuilding sectors with um, a wide array of uh, responsibility for uh, uh, various business functions. So that's a little bit about my background. In, in terms of how I got interested in water, I, I guess, Dave, it's, it, it probably is right to say that building a business and um, living for well over a decade in a part of the world that very highly water stressed, um, right? And it, it made yeah. me quite aware of the growing water challenges that we face on this planet. Um, and a few years back, I got a call from a, a buddy of mine who I sit on some boards with who mentioned to me the concept of building and operating large-scale warships to help address those global challenges that we face. And and I think the combination of shipbuilding, which is my background and one of my loves, um, and the chance to impact the global water crisis just captured my imagination immediately. And, and I've been involved and committed ever since. So that's kind of how I got to to the current day, Dave. Yeah, well, I think that's fascinating uh, that, that your background in shipbuilding has played such a a big role in where you find yourself today in terms of uh, providing essentially a floating desal uh, that can be moved around. So, so can we, let's just, let's just dial back to some of the basics of how this all came about. I'd, I'd like to, you know, before we jump in to talk about need and things of that nature, uh, can you, can you say, you know, how do you build the business case for uh, these ships? I mean, what, what kind of factors did you consider for, you know, to, to build a, a floating mobile desal plant? Well, you know, it seemed at the first blush, I guess, fairly obvious to me that there would be some unique advantages of a watership solution as compared to a land-based desalination plant. And I must say that my initial ideas about that were not, uh, were not very well formed. And I've spent couple of years now with a, with a really great team building our understanding of that, those important factors. And as you said, um, we're going to be building and operating a fleet of floating water production platforms on a, on a global basis. And our, our business model is, is structured around the notion of delivering water as a service, which I think is also not something that everyone offers. And I think uh, for a range of customers, it allows them to avoid the heavy capital commitments needed to build a traditional land-based plant. Um, and so we think it's not only the – that's at least a couple of the major advantages of waterships, and I'm happy to get into many of the others that we think build that case for us, um, that 
in in areas, Dave, where land-based solutions just are not the right answer. And, and that's not every case. You know, warships are not the solution for everything. Um, but we think there's a wide range of opportunities where they are right. and a far better solution than a land-based plant. Right. I'd love to hear what, what you think the characteristics of, of kind of your targets are. I mean, is it disaster relief or is this more of a permanent solution? Well, uh, permanent, I guess, is is an interesting word. I think that the the when you think about um, advantages, you know, of a watership, as you said rightly the, early on, the mobility is a is a huge issue, and that mobility allows you to offer short, medium, or long term water purchase agreements. So you don't need necessarily to have a long term solution a long-term commitment from a client in order to make an effective uh, an effective project um, so it's that ship mobility it's that uh, variable water variable term water purchase agreement it's the speed to deliver we we believe that delivery for a watership can e- can easily cut the traditional land-based plant delivery time in half um, of course the water as a service again, that client avoids capex and opex, and they're just a whole host of of industries and clients and markets where they they either don't have or don't want to have that big capex on their on their balance sheets. Um, and so we can we can offer a solution that avoids that. Um, I'll I'll talk in a little bit of, uh, about one of the things we're really. We've been working on hard and are, and are quite proud of, and that is our strategic partner network that we've been building. And that network allows us to offer a turnkey solution for our clients. So, for example, uh, there are a lot of a lot of uh, desalination companies and water water supply companies around the world that really leave the client to their own devices in terms of uh, distribution systems, offshore onshore infrastructure that would be required. For us, because of the network of partners that we bring to the table, we're able to offer turnkey solutions that include any sorts of onshore and offshore infrastructure in along along with the water production um, itself. We also think, Dave, that you know, as the environmental issues become a bigger factor for desalination, and that's happening, as you well know, uh, in front of our eyes. Um, but warships, we believe, have will have a reduced environmental footprint, and I can get into a little bit of why we, why that is the case. Um, and then, lastly, warships don't require the use of waterfront property. So, if there's a, a region that has other plans and needs for that valuable waterfront space, uh, we don't have to build a, a fairly uh, ugly factory on that on that shoreline. Because and negatively impact that scenic uh, waterfront, uh, because our ships will be located a fair distance offshore, perhaps uh, slightly over the horizon, um, and then the water would be delivered from the ship to the shore by subsea pipeline, and then we would have uh, separate pipelines that would deliver the fuel, typically uh, gas, uh, natural gas, from the shoreline to the ship. So. A whole host of reasons, I guess, why we believe there's a, there's a very robust market for this product. Yeah. And so, so Rocky, you've touched on a number of issues uh, that I'd like to explore. And, and let, me, let me list them so I don't forget them. 
uh, uh, energy. So you got you talk natural gas lines. I'd like to explore that a little more. Uh, reduced environmental footprint, um, uh, distance offshore and onshore infrastructure. So let's start with the last one: onshore infrastructure. I mean, what what's needed to to interconnect the the freshwater supply? I mean, does it does it? I, I assume it's going to connect into a drinking water treatment plant. That will then, or, or are you providing kind of turnkey? It's when it comes out, it, it it meets all primary drinking water standards and secondary drinking water standards, and it's ready to go. Well, two two things I would say about that day. First off, uh, only a portion of our client base will be requiring potable water. So, okay, um, obviously for those that do, yes, we'll prov- we'll be providing water that that provides uh, that meets both the primary and secondary. Uh, issues, so there won't be any uh, land-based treatment required in area. So that's point one. Point two is not all of the spaces, and not all the areas that we will operate in. In fact, quite a few may not have uh, the available distribution infrastructure or utility infrastructure required to accept our water. And, and therein lies the value of our, again, our strategic partner network to be able to get that water from the ship to the final destination uh, in the most efficient way. For, for areas that do have, um, that do need potable water and that do have a distribution system, then primarily our, we will, we'll get water to a metering station on the shore uh, and then work with the client to interconnect that water to make sure that that water meets the same standards that they are delivering in their existing um, uh, utility system, and then we'll just hook up to that utility system and and supplement the water that's there. Um, so that's kind of that's sort of how we see it, David. And I would say that potable water may be more uh, the exception than the rule. Uh, quite frankly, from okay. what we're seeing in the marketplace. All right. So so who are who are your off takers? I mean, if you're, if, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I'm just kind of curious if you're just selling the raw water, uh, who who are the expected off takers? Well, it's it's a very interesting question, and, and I have to say, I think we've developed some really unique ideas about the markets that waterships can best serve. Um, quite frankly, I'm. I don't want to be too specific in answering that question today, Dave, and I apologize. But <laughs> I, I understand. I'm not trying to get to, to your secret sauce. but Yeah, well, it is a bit of a secret sauce, and it's taken us a while to come to it. Um, there have been other companies that actually have thought about the, these, the watership notion in the past, and I think one of the, one of the advantages that we have is that we've, we've had that, that uh, aha moment, if you will, where we understand that um, that there's some very very uh, unique offtakers that where watership just just is is a superb advantage for them, and I guess the best way to say that is that our target markets uh, include customers who can best benefit from those unique advantages of our watership, uh, and the ones that I mentioned earlier, um, including our overall approach to the business. So, and, and a lot of that is industrial. A lot of it, some of it is agricultural. Um, yes, you, you mentioned disaster response and, and disaster preparation. That certainly is a, a market that we are, um, that we're, we're quite keen on. 
but uh, but there's a there are much larger markets at that than that that we uh, that we plan to address. Dave. Okay, so let's let's go on to uh, the, the environmental footprint. You mentioned mm-hmm. that that waterships will have or are expected to have uh, a smaller environmental footprint than a traditional land-based desalination plant. Can you can you kind of expand on that? Sure. Um, so we think that waterships have uh, several unique advantages over the traditional land-based plants when it comes to that environmental footprint. And from an, for, for example, from an air quality perspective, um, the majority of our ships will produce electrical power from LNG-fueled gas turbines. Um, and, of course, LNG is a much cleaner fuel than many others that might be used by um, uh, in either an existing uh, desalination, onshore desalination plant, or the power uh, plant that supplies that desal plant with its um, with its power. So, we think air quality. We definitely have um, have a reduced footprint from a seawater intake perspective, which often gets criticized um, with desal plants. Our ships will typically be located uh, several miles offshore. And that will allow us to collect our intake water from the ocean depths. But we intend to go below the level of light penetration to gather our seawater. And as you can imagine, at those depths, uh, without the light, the number of marine marine organisms is uh, substantially reduced. And and so unlike um, many of the land-based plants that take their seawater from shallower depths, uh, our warships won't entrap or entrain large numbers of, uh, of sea life. And so that's the intake notion. I guess the, the biggest um, concern that environmentalists have today perhaps is the brine discharge uh, from a desalination plant. And we understand that, and we are. Uh, we're certainly committed to continuing to improve our footprint in that regard. But in the initial go, Again, because our ships are are located offshore, we will discharge our brine into even deeper water than we're than we're pulling the the, the intake seawater. And at those depths, um, uh, ocean currents and just a huge surrounding volume of water will quickly disperse and, and further dilute that stream. Unlike a, a shore-based plant. Typically, it's going to be um, uh, depositing those brine discharges at a much much more close to shore and oftentimes even in sort of a bay or an area that doesn't flush as well. And, um, and so the brine, the brine could, uh, could accumulate and, and end up uh, uh, damaging the environment. So, uh, again, all three of those things, Dave, air quality, intake, uh, the intake plan and the plan for brine discharge, we believe, give us um, a significant advantage. However, I would also say that we have sort of two mantras at Watership Blue, and, and I think this drives us on a daily basis. We want to always be lowering the cost of water because we think that's important uh, for the planet going forward. But also we want to be decreasing our environmental footprint. And we're, we're, I don't think we're ever going to be uh, – wherever we'll walk away from those two commitments. We think that's just going to be the, the driving mantras of the business forever. And as technology improves and 
we have different ways of dealing with our waste streams. Uh, clearly, that's that's going to be built into our um, our processes from the day from day one. Right, right. So um, you mentioned. So let's go on to the fuel supply. You mentioned um, uh, liquid natural gas (LNG). So. Th- that would seem to say to me that are, is are there going to be instances where it could be tanker supplied LNG or d- does that fuel line have to come from the the shore because I would guess that that is a pretty limiting factor in terms of where you might deploy these. It's true. Um, in the cases where there is available land based supply, um, we believe that the pipe, the subsea pipeline, will be the the most efficient uh, solution. Um, however, if, if you may or may not know that the marine industry is really evolving uh, quickly in terms of the ability to bunker LNG fuels wide with ships that are specifically designed to do that. Um, in fact, our shipbuilding partners are have been uh, have already been heavily involved in that. We've been in contact with a lot of the owners and and in planned owners, future owners of those bunkering LNG bunkering ships and. We think that would be a great solution for areas where uh, there is no LNG supply. There could also be places, Dave, where there's excess uh, electrical energy. And in those cases, we would also be uh, considering the notion of a, of a power line, undersea power line from the shore to the ship and just avoid that power production on board altogether. Um, but we think that those cases will probably be rare, and most likely we'll have the onboard power production uh, involved in our in our daily processes. Right. Has, has there been any uh, exploration of using renewables in in that? You know, I've, I, we're all getting familiar with offshore wind. Uh, floating solar is another thing I've I've seen kind of come into prominence, um, but it, I'm just kind of curious if those have, have have ever been explored. They have, and, and at the moment, in terms of just the state of of play of those industries, we think that we will definitely use uh, ship based solar power generation for many of the shipboard operations. Um, but in terms of the power that's required to produce the water, I think just the, the amount of power, uh, sort of like a, a megawatt per million gallons a day, is sort of a typical ratio for desalination process. Um, we're just not going to be able to get the, the amount of power today um, out of those uh, offshore solutions. But having said that, we are absolutely committed to to being involved. We want to be part of the research and development process, working with universities, working with corporations that are in that game um, and take advantage of those capabilities as soon as they're available. So whether it's wind or solar, uh, there's even, uh, of course, wave-generated power and people are working on it. We've been deep conversations with those folks. It's not quite ready yet. But uh, ultimately, we believe it very, very well could be. The last question I had was distance offshore. I mean, it would seem to me that the farther you go offshore, the uh, more expensive it is to get to get number one, get the fuel out there. Number two, get the water back. Uh, kind of what what how do you determine that calculus in terms of how far out you're going to go? Strictly going to be client based. Um, 
if we are off the shore of um, of Dubai or something, and and you know their their opportunity for using that shoreline for a resort or some uh, some other important strategic uh, use that the corporate that the nation may have, um, and they want us out of sight, then we can easily position. Uh, slightly over the horizon and, and do that. In a case where it might be an industrial user and that's not really a concern for them, then you're absolutely correct. Uh, the, the, the closer we can locate in, you save a little bit in terms of the pipelines, but you also save logistically as well. I think one of the calculuses for us, however, goes back to the environmental issues and we don't want to be, we don't want to be close enough in that we that we miss the opportunity that a watership gives us to be in deeper water and to have less impact that way. What are the regulatory bodies you got to deal with? Well, there's a there's a global body in the maritime industry that's uh, that's uh, run by bodies within the United Nations that set rules for air emissions, uh, uh, what you can and can't do in port as as opposed to offshore. There's also a growing body of uh, regulation on continental shelf law that actually um, controls what uh, marine platforms can and can't do in the continental shelf areas. Um, but then every nation, of course, has its own uh, regulatory issues uh, that surrounding the production of water, uh, the use of ships offshore, or the use within ships within their um, their national boundary waters. So uh, the regulatory issues will be a function of that specific location of our ship. So it's going to vary from nation to nation. Um, while we we honestly don't see the U.S. market as our first likely target, um, so we'll, we will be adapting to those post-country regulations, whether it be in some place in South America or Sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East or the U.S. Um, and one of the advantages there is, again, going back to our strategic partners, Dave, um, Worley, a company called Worley Parsons, who's now just calling themselves Worley after a recent uh, acquisition, have uh, absolute decades of experience in uh, EPC experience with hundreds of desalination projects around the globe. And they've done both offshore platforms, onshore systems, and that deep knowledge uh, that Worley has gained will be fully available to us because they are our PMC slash EPC strategic, um, and they'll provide that knowledge to us in every area of executing a project, including regulatory compliance. So we think we've really got quite a quite a host, of, quite a gathering of knowledge in that arena, and we'll be able to to utilize that to our best advantage. Yeah, that sounds uh, like a winning plan to deal with that regulatory patchwork. Um, uh, that you know that patchwork, see that patchwork regulatory framework uh, right. is the kind of the term of art. Um, so so. Kind of, I'm curious what you found. There, obviously, there's a lot of moving pieces. What what do you uh, what have you encountered as the biggest hurdles in this environment in this entrepreneurial journey? Well, I think it's 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 not different than really many entrepreneurial uh, efforts. Is is getting people that uh, have the vision to see what the future can be uh, to adapt a new. 
uh, a new approach. You know, warships are are new in one aspect, but really uh, the the water production, the power production systems on board are are well proven. We're going to want to use state of the art, of course, but that state of the art technology will also be well proven. So we're not asking our clients or our investors um, to take any any particular uh, technology risk. Um, but even so. Uh, you know, it's difficult for people to sometimes to accept a new approach to things. So it takes time. Um, it's a bit of an education process. Um, we think that that's working and we're finding traction and we're really excited about the response that we're getting thus far from the potential clients that we've uh, we've interacted with. Well, that's ter- that's terrific. Now, you also mentioned risk, and that was kind of the next line of questioning I wanted to go down uh, in terms of, of dealing with that risk because when you're out on the ocean – uh, you have, you know, hurricane risk, uh, cor- you know, corrosion from the, the just the extreme briny environment um, and, you know, other environmental disasters that might occur. Let's say the, let's say a salt spill, a uh, brine spill happens or uh, right. some other environmental issue pops up. What, well, you know, how, how do you guys mitigate against those risks or deal with them? It's a really good question and, and something that we spend a lot of time uh, talking about. I, I've. We've put together an amazing team uh, at Watership Blue, Dave, and that team includes deep, deep expertise in every aspect of what we're doing, from from seawater desalination, from to shipbuilding, to uh, major offshore and onshore infrastructure projects, big, big EPC programs on a global level, um, a capital market access, and how those capital markets and project finance works. We really, really have just an incredible team that deals with every aspect, um, and that team has put a lot of thought into this notion of risk. And we we believe that the most important thing about risk mitigation, of course, is just planning and preparation. Um, and, and for that reason, we've we've already developed uh, and will constantly update a corporate risk register that defines our approach. Um, and our responsibilities for identifying and mitigating risk. And, of course, that strategic partner network that I keep mentioning is, is an integral part of that process. Um, in particular, our partners from the – I don't know, are you familiar with a product called an FPSO from the oil industry? Uh, no, I'm, no, I'm not. Okay, basically uh, an FPSO is a, is a floating platform, uh, it, very, very similar to a warship, that will be produced from a used oil tanker by converting a used oil tanker um, into a factory that can sit off the shoreline and produce a product. In the FP- in the case of an FPSO, they're producing oil products. Um, in the case of a watership, of course, we're producing fresh water. Um, the, our strategic partners from the FPSO business have been operating uh, platforms, ships, and fixed platforms um, offshore for decades in the oil and gas industry. And they've been, they're very well experienced with marine platform risk planning and preparation. So they're a big part of our effort in terms of putting risk mitigation plans together. Um, When we think about risk, we think about things like security, of course. Uh, You're offshore, uh, security of that vessel is absolutely critical. And we think about security in kind of three ways. Um, we think about the asset itself, which which will be um, uh, secured by 
a whole array of uh, sensor-based monitoring systems, not only for the ship, but as well as the, also for the offshore and the offshore infrastructure. We'll have physical security in place, which will provide access control to the ship, to all the spaces on the ship, facilities, data, et cetera. And then lastly, uh, something we're hearing more and more about uh, on a daily basis is cybersecurity. So uh, that will include the protection of our IT systems and the communication of critical data. And that communication thing is something I might like to focus on for just a second because one important aspect of our business model that I've not mentioned is our plan for a global operating center that is connected by satellite to each to the entire ship uh, watership fleet around the globe and that center will be operated on a 24/7 basis and will remotely monitor uh, critical data about water quality and the operation status of various main equipment uh, maintenance and security basically ensuring that every ship in the fleet is consistently delivering a high-quality product um, that meets or, or exceeds expectations. So you it's going to a couple of other thoughts there, you, you mentioned sort of severe weather or some sort of a, like a hurricane or maybe even a high-security environment, uh, maybe some conflict breaks out. Uh, again, one of the advantages of warship is that mobility. Uh, we can quickly and easily disconnect from a, a mooring and all the pipelines, uh, and move to a safe location until the danger is passed, uh, and then return it to the fixed mooring to resume water production uh, once we get the all clear. Um, I guess lastly, you mentioned corrosion, um, which is an interesting, very uh, insightful comment. Um, but I will tell you that we have, uh, in, in our perspective, we don't see corrosion as a very significant risk. And again, um, it's because of our strategic network partner network and the experience that they have. But to give you an example, um, our shipbuilding partners are out in Singapore at a company called Keppel Offshore Marine. And Keppel has more experience than any other company on the planet in building the FPSOs that I mentioned to you earlier. And again, those are really relevant for us at Watership Blue because they're they basically are built in the same way, the conversion of a, of a used oil tanker into a floating factory. So building an FPSO involves taking that tanker that was originally intended and designed to carry liquids from one spot to another over its life with regular sort of every five years, three years, five years going into a dry dock somewhere for maintenance work to deal with corrosion and the like. And converting that uh, ship into this floating factory that can stay moored at a fixed location for many years without ever having to leave and go to a dry dock. Um, and Keppel has done more of those FPSOs than anybody else on, in the world. Uh, they've built an, an incredible body of knowledge about how to do that conversion, how to protect the platform from corrosion, make it very safe, make very effective, uh, very secure, uh, offshore without ever having to, to leave that mooring. And so we're going to obviously leverage that capability, and, um, and we're looking forward to working with them and with all of our other partners as well. That, that's great. I, that, I'm, I'm glad that you've, uh, you've taken such a comprehensive approach to risk. It, it sounds like it's really well thought out. Um, well, you know, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, uh, Rocky. So what, what is your leave-behind message for the Water Values listeners? 
comes down to two things um, for me, Dave, and that is that uh, we all know that the global water crisis is probably the most important issue facing humanity. And people may argue back and forth on that. But for me, I truly believe that it is. I firmly also believe that Watership Blue will impact that crisis on a massive global scale. And that's what we're all about. Well, uh, Rocky, you've been fantastic today. I really appreciated your interview. It's been uh, really eye-opening um, and, you know, it, it just all, to, all around interesting. Where can people who want to find out more about you, about Watership Blue, where can they go to get that information? Well, um, my email is always available, and that's rocky at watershipblue.com. Um, our chief investment officer is also uh, online and, and available. His name is Tom Estes, and that's E-S-T-E-S. -E and you can catch him on thomas.estes at watershipblue.com. Uh, you can also go to our watershipblue.com uh, website for, for a bit of information. Um, and, yeah, we'd be happy to talk to anyone. Terrific. Well, uh, Rocky, again, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for your time, Dave. I've, I've really enjoyed being with you. Great. Thanks, Rocky. Bye. Okay. Bye now. Well, is your mind blown? I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rocky Holiday. He was absolutely fantastic. You can tell he is he has spent a tremendous amount of time and built an incredible network putting this whole thing together. And so I, I really can't wait to see this thing uh launch and see how it how it goes. So uh Rocky, kudos to you for the, the vision to put this together and thank you for your time. Um very interested to find out uh, what you thought about that interview. Uh, you can check us, check out the show notes at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one five four. That's thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one five four. Leave a comment on those show notes. Alternatively, you can email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can tweet at me with my handle. My Twitter handle is at dtm one nine nine three, or you can tweet using the hashtag watervalues. As I kind of mentioned earlier, please rate and review the podcast on Stitcher, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, whatever podcast directory you're, you're listening on would greatly appreciate it. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.